These are the daily lectionary comments for January the 11th. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 33. Uh, the watchman, the, uh, um, Ezekiel as the watchman for Israel, that theme is returned to. And then Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, where Paul deals with humanity in general and what God's opinion of them is. All right, Ezekiel 33. Um, this, the, the themes in this chapter conflate two different uh, chapters that we've already read. Chapter 3 uh, develops the idea of Ezekiel as the watchman and the responsibility of the watchman to warn when the Lord sounds the alarm. And also, uh, this contains a lot of language, a lot like uh, what we read yesterday in Ezekiel chapter 18. And that is, um, uh, those who, who uh, you know, the soul that sins shall die, that idea. Um, and so in many ways, it's kind of hard to keep this chapter straight from the others. A couple of things I'm going to do here. Number one is, I'm going to go back over some of what we've skipped. We skipped a bunch of stuff. We went from uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 3, and then I believe we, we skipped all the way to chapter 18, and then from 18, we skipped all the way to chapter 33. There's some things that happen in between there. Remember that when we first catch up to Ezekiel uh, in chapter 1, uh, he is already with the exiles, and it's like five years into the exile. And at that time, uh, Jerusalem had not been sacked. The temple had not been burned. The, the first uh, or the first major deportation in 597 had occurred. Uh, Zedekiah was a sort of a, a caretaker king in, in Jerusalem. Jehoiachin was the, the real king, uh, and he, but he was he was uh, uh, in in captivity with the with the other with the other Jews. So um, Ezekiel began his preaching in that context. If you read through the early chapters of Ezekiel, uh, all the way through, for example, chapter 17, um, you will see a certain theme. Ezekiel is going to have several visions, and these visions are going to involve a very uh, a fantastic vision of God uh, in a sort of a contraption of wheels that is kind of spinning and moving around, and kind of the idea of the cloud, like the cloud that was uh, over the, the uh, tabernacle and led the people through the wilderness. And in a series of steps, Ezekiel is going to describe visions in which um, the, the cloud or the presence of the Lord uh, slowly departs the temple and rises up above the temple and then leaves the temple and then leaves Jerusalem. And then uh, uh, later on in, in uh, I think it was Ezekiel chapter, oh, let's see. 24, I believe. In, in, in 24 and following, um, the siege of Jerusalem is described. So the, the Lord is described as, as leaving um, uh, the temple and sort of abandoning uh, uh, the temple and Jerusalem. And, and then later on, we learn from the point of view of the exiles that the temple itself uh, has been uh, destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem has been laid siege to and the temple destroyed. So this is all happening while the exiles here are not experiencing that. They're just learning about it from the news. Uh, and of course, it's, it's, a, it's a dreadful thing. These people had hoped to go back home soon. Of course, Jeremiah had told them they're not going home soon. 
but they had hoped that they would be going home soon. And now it turns out that they have no home to go back to. So that's all kind of happening in the background while, while Ezekiel is describing over and over again the basic problem. The problem is that, that you continue to hear the warning of, of, uh, of the prophets, but you're not paying any attention to it. Ezekiel is sounding the warning. Jeremiah did sound the warning. The people are not responding to the warning, and therefore they will bear their iniquity. And the warning is, you have sinned. Your souls have sinned, and your souls shall die. It's not just your fathers. Yes, they have led you down this primrose path and, 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 and set the table well for this, but you have joined right within, uh, uh, with them in this. But I want you to notice that the refrain that is said a number of times where the Lord says, and he, he says this in, in chapter 18, he says it here again, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. This is verse 11. This is spoken again and again uh, uh, by the Lord. He, he takes no pleasure in punishing his people. He takes no pleasure in allowing these things to happen, which is why he sends his prophets, which is why he begs them to repent and return, and which is why he sent them so many lesser calamities before this great calamity occurred. There's no reason for this, the Lord is saying. There's no reason for you to be suffering like this, except that you are rejecting the Lord your God, the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, the Lord who entered into a covenant with you and has been keeping faith all along. But you keep running after other gods. You do not love my, my uh, commandment and covenant. Uh, and therefore, you are covered from head to toe with bruises. And this is very much the language of Jeremiah here. But also Isaiah said things like this uh, as well. So I don't want you to be thinking about God as just sort of heartlessly uh, punishing his people uh, because that's just the kind of God he is. The truth of the matter is his heart goes out for his own people and he is keeping faith with them. He is not going to utterly destroy them. But the truth is they are suffering not because God is just a very difficult God to get along with. They are suffering because of their faithlessness. Ezekiel is warning them and they are ignoring him. Okay, Romans chapter 3 uh, Paul is going to bring to a conclusion the first part of um, of his uh, treatise here in Romans. He begins with the low-hanging fruit. See how evil and wicked unbelieving Gentiles are. Uh, and, and then he turns his attention uh, to the Jews who would lord it over the Gentiles because they have the word of God and they're instructors of fools and a light to the nations and all of this kind of stuff. But then he says, look, are you really any better? Do you really behave better than these people? In one sense, we can say, well, of course they do. Of course the Jews don't engage in all the same horrifying behaviors as the Gentiles do. And Paul probably would agree that that is the case. Jews are generally going to be a more moral people than, than the unbelieving Gentiles are, except for this. <clears throat> Since the Jews have the word of God, does it not count harder against them if knowing the word of God 
they break it. So, on the one hand, the Gentiles, of course, act in abominable ways, but the Gentiles don't have an advantage that the Jews have. And that is, they don't have the law of Moses. Now, maybe they ought to know better anyway. In fact, Paul would say that. But uh, the truth of the matter is, the Jews do know better and have the word itself and have been instructed. So to the extent that they fall short, is it not uh, more uh, uh, to, 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 to their detriment um, and their culpability that knowing their God and knowing his will, yet they still sin? And the answer is yes. So then chapter 3, verse 1, what? then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Circumcision is just a stand-in for all the various uh, requirements of the law of Moses. And he answers much in every way. So he's not saying it makes no difference. Well, what difference does it make? Well, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Let's put it another way. The Jews have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The Jews have the word of God. That is a tremendous advantage. Without it, all you have is your own wits, and that's not enough. The Jews have been richly blessed with the law of Moses, and we can say the same thing about a Christian today. We have the Word of God. Now, so to say that there's no advantage to being a Jew or there's no advantage to being a Christian, you might as well say there's no advantage to having God talk to you. There's no advantage to any of this. There's no advantage of God giving you the truth about things. Well, there's plenty of advantage in that. The question is, does it make you a better person just having those things? And that's why it says here in verse 9, what then? Are we Jews? Notice he says we, because he himself is a Jew. He's including himself. Are we Jews any better off? Any better off than whom? Any better off than all the Gentiles who, not having the law, live in sin? And the answer is, actually not. Now, what he's not saying that there's, you know, that there's no advantage in, in having the oracles of God, the law of God, and in having a right relationship with God. In fact, you must have the oracles of God to have a right relationship with God. To know God at all, you must have his word. So it's a tremendous advantage to have it. However, it doesn't actually make you a better person. It's not as though having the law of God, you, you now can stand on your own. You'll just simply follow the law of God and be a better person. God will recognize that you are doing that. Actually, it turns out that Gentiles are corrupt, and that's why they act corruptly. Jews are corrupt also. They are instructed with the word of God, but also act corruptly. They do that because they're sinners, and that's exactly what he says here in, the, in part of verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Greeks is a stand-in for all non-Jews, all pagans everywhere. They're all under sin. All have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and so on. He, he now quotes through a number. Most of these quotations are from the Psalms. Um, one of them is from Proverbs. I think one of them is from Isaiah. But he's quoting various places uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that talk about how everybody falls short of the glory of God. So the, the fact of the matter is, it may be that you have the oracles of God, but you are still corrupt. So merely having the oracles of God might actually be a tremendous advantage to you, 
but not in that it makes you a better person so that God looks at you and says, well, now there's, there's a good person who does not fall short, who is not corrupt anymore. It's no advantage that way. And that's why Paul is making the point here that when we consider human righteousness, the sort of objective quality of the human heart and the human moral character, we are all in, in, in pretty bad shape. We may have the word of God, so we know better, but we are still corrupt and fallen creatures. So, and that's why he says, when it comes to judging human hearts and human character just in and of itself, uh, all fall short, all are in a very bad way, and that the advantage that, that we get from the word of God is not the advantage that it makes us a better person so we can, we can enter the kingdom of heaven. There's something else. And he's going to start talking about that tomorrow. He's going to start talking about the righteousness of God. It's a different thing. So the actual question, well, why is this one saved and that one not? The answer is not going to be, well, this one was more righteous than that one. That would be to look at things from the point of view of human righteousness. But Paul is making it very clear, if we're going to look at it from the point of view of human righteousness, we're all in bad way. But there's another kind of righteousness out there, another kind of way that a person can become right with God. And that's where Paul is going, and that's where he's going to begin developing for us in tomorrow's reading.